Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An original. From Story Studio Network. I'm Aaron Trafford in Halifax. I'm Dave Trafford in Toronto. And this is Now and Next. This week... Now and Next brings you a special Remembrance Week series brought to you by the RCAF Foundation. As we approach Remembrance Day, November 11th here in Canada, we're called upon to acknowledge and honor the years of service our veterans have afforded this country and the sacrifices they made, often with their lives. But it's also an opportunity to celebrate the rich history of this country that has informed and shaped our culture, our national identity, and our place in the world. I'm Dave Trafford. I'm Aaron Trafford. In this limited podcast series, we endeavor to explore some of the stories that are uniquely rooted in the history of the Royal Canadian Air Force and Canadian Aviation. Welcome to Pathway to the Stars. This episode is about two historic characters. They fought side by side in World War One. They were celebrated flying aces. They both enjoyed national notoriety and a good deal of fame. So they're like Maverick and Iceman is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that, they are the characters. And what we're, who we're talking about here, people will know probably the first name, Billy Bishop. If you fly in and out of the island airport here in Toronto, you're flying in and out of Billy Bishop Airport. So we got it. But the second guy is William Barker. And I know the name's just kind of hanging out there. It doesn't resonate the same way. But Bishop's and Barker's celebrity would have been something closer to, you know, Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid right now in the NHL. So if these guys were the Maverick and the Iceman, the Tom Cruise and the Val Kilmer, the Matthews and McDavid stars of the day, how did Barker fall off the radar? I talked to Jason Wilson for this episode. He's a history prof at Guelph University. And he told me these two guys had the same pedigree, the same credentials. They're both from this fighter pilot archetype that, you know, we might see in Top Gun where um, they're both in that ever, ever in the hunt for adventure. But it comes down to one basic difference. 
Bishop, for all intents and purposes, was born to be a PR hound. You're absolutely correct. Bishop had a way of of self-promotion that Barker certainly did not. But even at that, nearly a hundred years after his death, still, Barker's an all but forgotten character. There has to be more to this story, though, than just good PR. Like, how does one end up being celebrated as the national hero and then... The other one just kind of more or less disappears. Yeah, well, it's a good question. And and there are real attempts to sort of revive that memory and the character. So I want to bring in our friend and colleague, John Wright, to the story. Our listeners will probably know him as the veteran pollster and the researcher. So this all starts with John browsing through a bookstore on the south side of the downtown University of Toronto campus. I actually was around Spadina um, Crescent one day, and there's a bookshop there. And I went into it, and I found a book on the shelf by Mike Filey. And John just picks up a book, and it was written by a local Toronto historian, the late Mike Filey. Talking about the people who had been buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. And so like a total geek, I picked up the book. Now, the book chronicles the lives of some of the people buried in one of the largest cemeteries in Toronto. Today, Mount Pleasant, right in the middle of the city. A hundred years ago, it would have been on the northern edge of town. So, John starts reading these mini-histories, and they're all laid out alphabetically. They got to be as in Barker. And he stops on Barker. William Barker. He's the most decorated war hero in the British Empire, still is. And he learns about Barker's accomplishments, about his his relationship to Bishop. Billy Bishop's best friend married Billy Bishop's cousin, so they're actually related. He reads about Barker's historic prowess as a fighter pilot. And I, I don't even know who this guy is. And so John, after all of this, realizing he doesn't know anything about Barker, takes it upon himself to resurrect the memory and the story of William Barker. So hold on a second. When is it that John makes this discovery? Okay, so we're back to 2009 when he first picks up the book, and this is when he reads the Barker story. And then he kind of sets off on this personal mission to promote the life and the times of William Barker. He does a couple of cool things here. He enlists an old schoolmate, David Onley. Name might be familiar to some of our listeners. David was the former lieutenant governor here in Ontario. And he also made contact with one of Barker's three grandsons, Ian McKenzie. And they gather to help promote and get this project off the ground. And in 2010, the stars kind of begin to align for them. We were able to put together a group of people and through that got some financing for a monument that would go in front of um, the Mount Pleasant Cemetery mausoleum. So John and the group want to erect this proper monument for Barker in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. And it's a bronze piece of art that shows the half propeller of a Sopwith camel aircraft. And it was all with the family's approval that we put that there with Barker's face on it and a couple of other things written about him. All intents and purposes, it, it's, a, it's a piece of art. And it's going to sit outside the mausoleum 
that holds Barker's remains at Mount Pleasant. We then unveiled it to a very large crowd. The unveiling is emotional. It's a beautiful ceremony. We had World War I planes that came over the top of the mausoleum as we were saying, you know, and it was, it was quite the thing. Okay, so end of story. Barker gets the monument and good on John for making the effort. Well, yeah, there's a bit of a gap though in between because the, the best part of the story is how much of a challenge it was to get the monument there. It was not a straightforward affair in any stretch of the imagination. So John's initial inquiry to Mount Pleasant presents a major obstacle. There are no monuments in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. There's no shortage of elaborate gravestones and markers at Mount Pleasant. But as a matter of policy, the cemetery does not allow monuments. My first encounter with Mount Pleasant Cemetery was, we can't put a monument up. And I thought, well, why don't we just put a rock over here by the mausoleum if you can't? No, no, we can't do that. So John has, okay, I got to get plan B. Mount Pleasant won't allow the monument at Barker's burial site. He's thinking out loud and he's making the plan to move Barker's remains to a cemetery in Ottawa that would allow for a monument and a ceremony fitting his stature in the RCAF. So I actually returned home and then I started talking to the McKenzie family and I actually wrote out an email saying, under consideration, would you consider taking him to Ottawa, like exhuming the body? and putting on a parade like the Fallen Heroes and having it across Ontario, where they would go then to the National Cemetery and have him reburied there. So he pitches the idea via email to Barker's family. And I described it in kind of a creative way, you know, with a helicopter going up above and people coming out to see it and waving their flags, because the whole idea was to make him come alive. And almost immediately, within hours, oddly enough, John gets a call from the folks at Mount Pleasant. I got a call the next day and it said, can you come over to the, to the mausoleum, please? And I went over and they said, look, why don't we put this monument here and go down and yeah, we can do the, the door and we can do all this stuff. And I was astonished. I thought, holy geez, what's happened here? And I got in the car and I remember this so clearly and there was a knock at the window and I downed the window looked at me and said, so he's staying here, right? And I went, yeah, yeah. Now, he's a little puzzled by Mount Pleasant's seeming turnabout here. They'd already said no, but now they're at a point where they're happy to accommodate the monument, and he begins to wonder why. So... He realizes why when he gets home to fire off a note to the family, bringing them up on the developments. When I hit the send button, I didn't realize that I had actually sent it not only to the family, but I'd sent it to the people at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. I I, I honestly did not know that I'd done that. Yeah, John had mistakenly sent the Plan B email to Mount Pleasant at the same time he sent it to Barker's family. Hence the, so he's staying 
question. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. And, you know, John, you could hear it in his voice when he tells the story. That's an odd thing to be asking me. The penny drops and and he understands. So in hindsight, it's kind of a funny story, but it, it this wouldn't have happened if he hadn't missent the, the email. Okay, but it also gives you a sense of the passion and resolve John had for this whole project. I mean, they were at least discussing, if not considering, the possibility of exhuming Barker's body and moving him to a place where he'd be acknowledged. You're right, but to be clear, in the long run, they never would have moved Barker's body just because it would have had so many implications on the family as a whole. The second part of this is... Mount Pleasant Cemetery has become a really important partner in this whole project with uh, John Wright and, you know, the move to promote and support the memory of William Barker. And that includes a number of uh, Remembrance Day services that they've held over the years, specifically at Billy Barker's monument. But again, as a result of John's misdirected email, Barker's monument right now, the only one in, uh, in Mount Pleasant. So, I mean, that's, that's awesome to hear that he's getting his due. Like, what has it been? 90 years. So, so 90, 90 years since world war one, but all of this to me still doesn't fully explain why Barker sort of faded into obscurity in the background. Okay. Let's go back to, to Jason Wilson, because as he told us, Billy Bishop loved the limelight, right? He was a self promoter, Barker, not interested or inclined for self-promotion. And there's a constant narrative here when you dig in and you find out more about Barker. He was not the greatest guy to be around all the time. Barker probably was his own worst enemy. If if uh, you look at his post-war career, nothing lasted very long. Now remember, Barker, Bishop, both adrenaline junkies, right? They had to be in order to be as great as they were in the cockpit. In in the Sopwith Camel, that's the biplane that uh, Barker flew during the war. He defied death and won over and over and over again. And now you get to post-war, and it was a pretty rough transition to go from the open cockpit. He's waging dogfights of the skies of Europe and then now into the shirt-and-tie office job world. Who gets that kind of chance to, to face death uh, over and over again and win like he did in the First World War and then to bang, stop, uh, that's it. Uh, you know, what else, what else can you do? But Billy Bishop would have faced that exact same kind of abrupt identity transition, right? Yes, yes, he did. But there are two notable differences first between Bishop and Barker. We talked about the first one. Bishop is the PR hound. He's the self-promoter. On the other hand, Barker is the guy who was severely wounded during his career as a fighter pilot. So in 1917, he suffers a head wound from anti-aircraft fire. And in the course of it, he passes out in the cockpit, right? He is revived by the observer. Now, this is the guy who's sitting in the seat in the front of the plane. And he, <laughs> he wakes up to the observer pouring alcohol down his throat. That's how he wakes him up. Whoa. Yeah. And he manages to regain control of the aircraft. The aircraft crashes, but the two of them survive it, and and all that's good. But then he's severely wounded in a dogfight in 1918. 
he's not quite as lucky a year or so later. He's almost mortally wounded. He has his elbow blown off. He shot twice others. His legs are permanently damaged. His his left arm is it's got limited movement. And he ends up in a field alive and they take him to the surgery to get fixed. And he's so famous at that moment, there are even photographs of him on the table with doctors and the nurses standing behind the gurney. Barker will survive a dogfight where by all accounts, he was severely outnumbered by enemy fighter planes, but it leaves him disabled. And so even though he's a Victoria Cross recipient, he couldn't even walk the few paces that that was necessary to collect um, the Victoria Cross at Buckingham Palace when he got it in, in 1919. So there's that physical side as well that must have worn down on, on a man that was, he, while he was only 35 when he died, was probably very, very much older, um, given, given the war wounds, physical and emotional. Now remember, Barker was a guy in his early 20s when he fought in World War I. So the physical damage may have been treated to some extent in hospital, but you know, emotional trauma would have been all but ignored at the time. We didn't know about PTSD, never mind treated. It was a sort of buck up and get back in the game feel to it, right? So this is all kind of making me sad. Like, the he's the adrenaline junkie, a decorated pilot who, who quite literally couldn't stand before the king to receive the Victoria Cross. I mean, all of this... Now this feels like a sad story with a sad ending. Well... It is to some degree. He died at the age of 35. Here we are, the spring of 1930. And and Barker was the newly appointed president of Fairchild Aviation Corporation of Canada. He's in Ottawa in March. He's there to demonstrate this newfangled Fairchild aircraft for the Department of National Defense. And as the story goes, he gets into the plane. He takes off. He does this kind of swoop over the crowd, very dramatic. And then he pulls it into a steep climb. The engine stalls at about 200 feet. Fairchild crashes nose first. Barker's killed. Given his experience, given his position at Fairchild, it's hard to understand how he would have made such a fatal error. I mean, he was pushing that aircraft well beyond its limits. There's some doubt as to, you know, he maybe hastened that himself. We'll never know, obviously. Now, there's not a lot of commentary or observation about his thinking prior to that flight, but one notable business associate, whom Barker taught to fly, actually, during the war remembered him for his fearlessness. His war wounds left him pain-ridden, and I believe few men have suffered more than he has, and yet maintained an outward calm and genial disposition. I am deeply grieved to hear of his death, although I believe that it was the way Billy Barker would have wished to go. Death had no terror for a man who faced it as often as he did. And I thought, Wow, that's that's kind of, you know, everything you need to know about, about Billy Barker in a way. It was Con Smythe, the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who knew Barker during the war. And in fact, Smythe made NHL hockey history in 1927 when he gave Barker a job. 
Billy Barker will always go down as the first ever president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Barker became the Leafs' first president. I talked to sports broadcaster Rod Black, who's not only a hockey fan, turns out he's a bit of a Barker buff. It was more ceremonial that he gave him this job, this title as president. There were not many presidents of sports teams at the time. I believe, in my heart anyway, that Smythe is fashioning the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's, he's, he's rebranding this uh, Toronto St. Pat's team into the Maple Leafs in the vision that's rooted in the, the men of the First World War that he served with. And I can't think of anyone that captured that spirit better than Billy Barker did. He became that face, that guy behind the Maple Leaf. So it sounds like Barker was, can I say this, more famous than the Leafs <laughs> at the time? Yeah. Like, that's kind of hard to imagine when you think of how crazy the Leaf fan base is across the country right now. No, absolutely. I mean, his celebrity preceded himself. It preceded the Leafs. So much so that when Barker died and his funeral was held in Toronto, it was a more than extraordinary affair. You have 50,000 spectators at his funeral. You have 2,000 soldiers as an honor guard at his funeral. They had six Victoria Cross winners who flew over top, dropping rose petals. I mean, it was the biggest event in Toronto's history. It was and remains the largest single funeral in Toronto history. It's almost as if they closed the door in 1930 and no one thought of him again. So our story starts and ends at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. But I found an important footnote to reinforce the connection between Barker, Con Smythe, the City of Toronto, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the RCAF. You need to know that the RCAF retires its colors from time to time. They update them to reflect any historic developments, whatever it might be. So when you say colors, you're, you're talking about the flag of the Royal Canadian Air Force, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Colors are unique ceremonial flags that originally served as a rallying point during battle. Today, they are treasured symbols of the loyalty, pride, cohesion, and valor of our women and men in uniform. So the the RCAF had received new colors in Toronto in September of 2017. The Royal Canadian Air Force's new colors were presented to them by the Governor General here in Toronto at Nathan Phillips Square a few months ago. So it meant that the former colors that had been presented in 1982 and reflected the RCAF's previous identity as Air Command were retired. Now, to put a point on this, the RCAF describes them as, quote, unique, consecrated military flags. There's something sacred about these colors. And more often than not, the colors are retired in churches. So in 2017, the question is, which church would house these retired RCAF colors. Commander Mike Hood at the time, who's an avid Montreal Canadian fan, said the birth of the RCAF was actually in Toronto. The Maple Leafs' connection with the RCAF is strong. 
100 years ago, Canadian air crew were first recruited and began training right here. And because of the relationship that Barker had with the Toronto Maple Leafs, which was its own church or cathedral in a way, the colors were retired in a very public ceremony. The Maple Leafs are honored to accept the great responsibility of these retired colors and safeguard them for the men and women of the RCAF who guarantee Canadian sovereignty and protect Canadian values here and around the world. So if you go there in Raptor Square and you look just to the left, there's a cutaway in glass and it's the two sacred flags looking at each other and you can see it from both sides and those are the RCAF colors that were retired not to a church but to the place of the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. The Toronto Maple Leafs are honored to accept the colors of the Royal Canadian Air Force. To present the colors, please welcome Royal Canadian Air Force Commander Lieutenant General Mike Hood and Royal Canadian Air Force Command Chief Warrant Officer Gérard Poitras. And to accept the RCAF colors on behalf of the Toronto Maple Leafs, please welcome Leafs alumni, Daryl Sittler and Darcy Tucker. So there's a Barker connection right to the Toronto Maple Leafs to this day. And the RCAF under Mike Hood, again, a Montreal Canadian fan said, gotta go there because that's where it belongs. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise and remove your hats. Carrying the colors, the Royal Canadian Air Force Color Party. So we've got Scotiabank Arena, home to the Leafs, and Mount Pleasant Cemetery. They're really the only two sites in Toronto that acknowledge Barker. Now, there was an airfield located in the Lawrence and Dufferin area. If you know the neighborhood, it's just south of the Yorkdale Shopping Center right now in North York. And it was named after Barker. So it was initially the National Air Transport Airport, and it became Barker Field in 1931. Um, so that's gone. Nothing there. Uh, but you know what we do have right there is Billy Bishop Way. a street right in the heart of, of this aviation hub of Toronto aviation history. It's framed by Downju Park on one side and Armour Heights on the other side. And guess what else we have? We have Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport. And I, and I think there are, there are other sort of things on the periphery, like, like art, for instance. We have uh, Billy Bishop Goes to War, very popular musical by Eric Peterson and, and John Gray that, that gets reprised every now and then in, in the theater. So you have this uh, payment, if you will, of Bishop's name constantly in the ether just to remind people uh, or in some cases introduce people to, to Billy Bishop and his great First World War achievements. We don't have that for Barker. And yet, we're talking about the most decorated servicemen in Canadian history. You know, uh, a VC, a DSO, Military Cross, a Croix de Guerre, like, he's got them all. <laughs> and yet, uh, not too many people have heard of that, uh, that name, and yet everyone has heard of Billy Bishop. So, 
When you hear all this put together, though, it's hard to believe Barker hasn't been celebrated more. But I mean, all this to say, it's also good that John Wright and the Barker family are still making great headway on on celebrating this legacy. Yeah. And I think, you know, to to be clear, this isn't the first time his story has been told. And <laughs> there's a lot more to tell here, including his partnership with Bishop in a short-lived airline venture, his tenure as the director of the RCAF in 1924. And I think what's most cool about all of this is his happenstance connection and acquaintance with a young nurse who visited a training field in what is now North York in Toronto, around Avenue Road and 401, she visited the site, was so inspired, she became a pilot. It's really where Amelia Earhart's story begins in aviation. <laughs> we need to tell that story. How cool is that, right? This now and next series, Pathway to the Stars, is produced for the RCAF Foundation by Story Studio Network. And we'd encourage you to go over to their website, check them out, rcaffoundation.ca. And while you're there, you may want to consider donating to the RCAF Foundation scholarships offered to Canada's next generation of aviation and aerospace leaders like Evan Schoenfeld. When I was in high school, we have a convention where colleges and universities can set up booths at our high school and we can walk around and talk to different representatives who will talk to us about their respective schools. I went to the Royal Military College booth and I started talking to the representative there. I told him I wanted to be a military photographer and what my goals were. He told me that there weren't any positions available at that time, but if I wanted to get into the college and start looking at other fields of study that interested me, I would be there and ready for when a position opened up. So I started talking with him about my likes and dislikes and he started explaining some of the programs that he thought I would enjoy. When he started talking about aerospace engineering, I fell in love. Right then and there, it hit me. That was exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So all of my goals, everything that I've done since then has been working towards a career in aviation. Your money helps with those ambitions and those dreams. Again, go to rcffoundation.ca and make a donation today. Now and Next is produced by Becky Coles. Our production manager is Jamie Nickerson. Our audio editors are Mike Trutler and Drew Garner. Our sonic logo designer is Greg McDonald. And our executive producers are me, Dave Trafford, and Aaron Trafford. Thanks for listening. This is SSN. Story Studio Network.